I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who are the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on episode 80 of Fan of History. 6200 to 5500 BC. Previously on Fan of History we mentioned that agriculture had started to make its way up the Danube River to an area known today as the Iron Gate, which occupies the boundary between Romania and Serbia. There were two possible ways that agriculture reached this particular area, either off the east coast of Bulgaria or directly across from the Black Sea itself. Well, however agriculture got there, by 6200 BC, people had started to settle down and one particular culture would arise that was named after the type site located near the Serbian capital, Belgrade. This was Starcevo, the earliest Neolithic culture in the Balkans. And we start this episode here. Starcevo culture, 6200-5500 BC. Starcevo was first excavated between 1931 and 1932 by the University Museum in Philadelphia, the Peabody Museum and Fog Art Museum of Harvard University in Massachusetts and the American School of Prehistoric Research. A preliminary report of the settlement was published a year later in 1933. It found that parts of the site had been destroyed by clay mining in 1912. The culture was distributed over a vast area of the Balkan region. In the north, it reached as far as the Transdanubia region, located south of Lake Balaton in western Hungary. Other settlers located themselves between the river Sava and Drau in eastern Croatia. Remains can also be found in Serbia, Kosovo, Bosnia and northern Croatia. Similar cultures to the Starcevo include the Kerös in Hungary, named after the river Kerös. 
the Chris in Romania, the Caranovo in Bulgaria, the early Neolithic cultures of Eastern Albania and Macedonia, and the Sesclo culture in Northern Greece that we talked about last time. It is sometimes known by the alternative name Starchevo Kreus Kreis, as highlighted uh, on our YouTube channel, if you look at the video for this episode in the series Timeline of World History. In terms of settlements themselves, very few can be analyzed. In Divostin, a village located in Stanovo, Serbia, two different types of houses were excavated. The first type consisted of a roundish or elliptical sized hut, 3 to 5 meters in length, 2 to 4 meters wide, that was partially built into the ground. It was surrounded by thin posts. Inside it contained a central hearth for warmth and cooking. The second type consisted of a post house that had a rectangular ground plan. Walls were made of wattle and daub with trenches alongside. Floors were made of stamped clay. It is difficult to establish how large these settlements were due to the dearth of finds. It is probable that these were only small villages that had an economy based on agriculture and stock breeding, particularly sheep and goat rather than cattle. Despite this, hunting and gathering uh, continue to play a significant role in their diet. Old habits are not easy to get rid of. The discovery of pottery fragments by V. Milojcik in 1949 led him to divide the Starchevo culture into four distinct phases. At the beginning of the period in 6200 BC, pottery was coarse, rough and unpainted. After that, it began to be painted, first in white, before much darker colors were used, including dark brown as well as black, being painted onto a red slip. The third phase of the culture contained pottery that was either black or black and white painted onto a red slip. This started to include motifs consisting of net patterns, spirals, garlands and floral patterns painted onto bowls, cups, small dishes and vessels. Finally, by the end of the culture in 5500 BC, painting started to deteriorate in quality. It was part of a series in culture in southeast Europe that used painted pottery, as opposed to the Cardium pottery culture that used pottery decorated with impressions such as cockle shell, as we talked about in the last episode, or the Bug Gneister culture that used pottery with a pointed base, again decorated with impressions. One distinctive feature of the Southeast European Early Neolithic is that there were very few graves around. From the few graves that have been found, burials were single grave inhumations rather than the later cremations and they tended to be located inside the settlement. Children were buried in crouched position, lying on either the left or the right side. Very rarely were individuals laid on their back or front. Noticeable were the distinct lack of grave goods. Of those found, fragments of vessels, grinding stones, flint stones, or jewelry were buried with the deceased. The Starchevo was eventually superseded by the Vinca culture in 5500 BC, and we'll talk about that in another episode. Because now we're going to Crete. And we're going to talk about Neolithic Crete that lasts from 6000 to all the way to 2800 BC. 
When we move further south from the Balkans into the Aegean Sea, southeast of mainland Greece, and there lies the large island of Crete. Crete has been relatively quiet in our story so far. Yes, there was a possibility, however remote, that somehow our hominid cousins had arrived on the island 130,000 years ago. This theory came about following the discovery of Achilluan hand axes by Thomas F. Strasser of Providence College in Rhode Island between 2008 and 2009. But if we are talking about actual settlers, then we need to look at the start of Neolithic Crete. How the first settlers came to Crete is a matter of debate. Did they derive from existing Paleolithic and Mesolithic hunter-gatherers? And if so, when did they arrive on the island? Or were they newcomers arriving by boat from Anatolia, Cyprus or the Levant? If you go with the latter theory, then these people would have arrived sometime during the 7th millennium BC, bringing with them sheep, pigs, cattle and domesticated wheat, barley and lentils. But where to settle? Well, the north of the island looked the most attractive to these people, and indeed it wasn't long before a small settlement appeared, by approximately 6000 BC. This settlement would later grow to become one of the most important settlements in Bronze Age Crete, complete with its own palace, and possibly, according to myth, a labyrinth containing a bull-headed monster known as a Minotaur. This is, of course, Knossos, and its history is marked closely with that of Neolithic Crete. I went to Knossos in 2007, uh, in the middle of July. Don't do that, it is extremely hot. Okay, forget the Greek myth. This is the real story of Knossos. For a start, we have to thank the main specialist of the Neolithic Aegean, John Davis Juvens. Uh, following further excavation carried out by J.D. Ewens in pits and trenches around the remains of the palace, he was able to summarize Neolithic Crete and Knossos in particular into separate, specific periods. At the start of the Neolithic, in what became known as the Akeramek, Knossos was a small settlement of between 20 to 50 people living in buildings made of unbaked mud brick which is likely to be washed away in a sudden downpour, or from a combination of stones, mud and mud brick. Living on the north coast did have its advantages, though, and in order to obtain the necessary material to make axes, mace heads, knives and arrowheads, they utilized the Aegean Sea to travel north to the nearby island of Milos in the Cyclades, that contained both stone and obsidian, and obsidian is that precious volcanic glass similar to the glass found at Katalhöyük in Anatolia. Although these early settlers did not use pottery, they were able to use clay for other means, such as the manufacture of female figurines. Of course, these female figurines again, which are the Ewans attributed to the worship of a Neolithic mother goddess and to their religion in general. In 5700 BC, in what was known as the Early Neolithic, Knossos grew to a settlement of between 200 and 600 people who occupied the area what would be the later Minoan Palace and on slopes situated to the north and west. Levels 8 to 9 of Knossos contained buildings rectangular in shape that were constructed of fired mud brick. 
at least it won't wash away now, so they have obviously learned from their mistakes this time. Or they discovered the means to fire them. From level 7 onwards, buildings were constructed of poured mud on either field or recycled stone foundations. Inside they had one or two rooms that were lined with mud plaster. Roofing over these structures was flat and fairly thick, allowing unsupported spans to be kept small. Central hearths kept these occupants warm and cozy. One unusual house in Knossos under the West Court had eight rooms and covered 50 square meters in size with walls built at right angles, large stones for support, storage areas and a central door. Could this be the head of the settlement's house? Unlike the aceramic, pottery started to be introduced, which was generally dark-surfaced and burnished, decorated with incised and dot-impressed motifs that was often filled with white or red paste. The technology behind this type of pottery, particularly its complex handles and rims, was likely to have been imported from outside, but it could easily have been copied from other containers made of woods or reeds. Between 4000 and 3600 BC, known as the Middle Neolithic, the population of Knossos increased further to between 500 and 1000 people. Although no apparent changes were made to the architecture, people did start to live in much more substantial and private family homes rather than the egalitarian way of life from the previous early Neolithic. Despite lack of changes, windows and doors were introduced that were made of timber. A fixed raised central hearth occupied the room and cabinets, beds and pilasters occupied the perimeter. Underneath the later palace, a great house was discovered with an area of 100 square meters. It was made of stone and it was divided into five rooms with evidence suggested that it contained two stories, as meter-thick walls have been found. Unlikely to have been a private residence, it was likely to have been used as a communal or public meeting place, although it could have been the predecessor of the palace. New shapes in pottery increased, with rippled relief decoration becoming popular, although the overall style was the same as in the early Neolithic. First evidence appeared of a weaving industry in the form of spindle walls, loom weights and shuttles. Rock crystal made its first appearance to manufacture maize heads and axes. The final Neolithic period between 3600 and 2800 BC saw a dramatic increase in population at Knossos, possibly as a result of new arrivals from outside of Crete. Two large buildings were excavated by Arthur Ewens under the central court of the later palace. They contained two fixed hearths, unlike anything seen in the preceding Neolithic periods. It was certainly unusual for later Minoan Crete. One of the buildings contained 15 rooms. Now we are getting close to palace size. Pottery remained unchanged, except that crusty decorations started to appear by 2800 BC. Evidence of metal artifacts appeared with the discovery of a copper axe in one of the buildings that Mr. Ewens excavated. We will be covering the Copper Age in a later episode. As well as Knossos, people started to settle in Phaistos, Magasa and other areas in West and Central Crete. In Magasa, 
an unusual two-room structure with no less than 19 stone axes and four millstones as well as obsidian fragments were found that suggested the building was used either as a tool maker's workshop or possibly as a sheepfold. Whatever its function, it was certainly unusual for prehistoric Crete. In regards to burials, infants and children tended to be buried in pits under the floors of houses in Knossos between the Assamaratic and Middle Neolithic periods. During the Late Neolithic, caves and rock shelters served as burial places in other parts of Crete. It would be the succeeding Bronze Age in 2800 BC that would herald the next stage in ancient Crete, but that is beyond the scope of this episode, because now we have to talk about the Asuna culture from 5800 to 5300 BC. If you sail east from Crete, you will eventually arrive on the western coast of the Mediterranean in an area known as the Levant. By this period, people had moved away north and eastwards to parts of Syria and northern Iraq. In the previous episode, we had covered those who settled in Syria, known as the Halaf culture. Well, in 5800 BC, a sister culture emerged in the foothills of northern Iraq, known then as Mesopotamia, called the Hasuna culture. It was named after the type site of Tel Hasuma that emerged in Nineveh province, province, 22 miles southwest from modern-day Mosul. It was discovered in 1942 by Fouad Safar before being excavated between 1943 and 1944 by Seton Lloyd, who led the team from the Iraqi Directorate General of Antiquities. This revealed an advanced village culture that spread throughout northern Mesopotamia in approximately 6000 BC. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. People moved to the foothills of northern Mesopotamia to practice a type of agriculture known as dry farming that we mentioned in the last episode. Like the Halaf culture of Syria, Tel Hasuna became one of the most important centers for the Neolithic economy in particular for cultivation and raising livestock. Inhabitants led the way in improving agriculture, settling in river valleys, beginning the process of irrigation, and progressing all forms of production and culture. Before the discovery of Tel Hasuna, southern Mesopotamia was considered a cradle of civilization, but when settlements started to be discovered in the north, such as Tel Hasuna, Jarmo, Samara, and Tel Halaf, the north became an important region in the early story of Mesopotamia. At Tel Hasuna, six different layers of housing were uncovered. Buildings were built of packed mud, varying in size between 20 to 50 centimeters. Uh, this technique of mud bricks was probably developed from uh, southern Mesopotamia, where it was common in the early 6th millennium BC. Later buildings were built of stone, around an open central court. Settled agriculture, uh, agricultural life was reflected in the finds of hand axes, sickles, grinding stones, bins, baking ovens and bones of domesticated animals. They do not seem to be as advanced as those found at Jarmo as tools were made out of flint and obsidian. Trade with Katalhöyuk? Possibly. Female figurines were of course used for worship. Jar burials contained food that were used for people to take to the next world after death. So it's very likely there was a belief in an afterlife. Various vessels and pottery found in the six layers were dated to a period between 5600 and 5300 BC. With similar vessels being found across the Middle East, it showed that there was an extensive trade network across the region as early as the 6th millennium BC. Pottery can be divided into three different categories. Hasuna Archaic, Hasuna Standard and Samaran. Samaran painted fine ware was always monochrome, but it seemed that all three types of paint have been used, including black, dark violet brown and a medium chocolate brown. In general, designs were carefully painted, although parallel lines did diverge slightly and there was a variation of some lines suggesting the usage of a soft painting brush. The Hasuna and contemporary Halaf cultures were superseded by a culture from southern Mesopotamia that had originally commenced in approximately 6500 BC. And we have not covered them yet, but by 5400 BC, they had begun to influence the rest of Mesopotamia, albeit not by military conquest. We will know more about them in the next episode. As we turn our attention to the south, where the people had lived among the marshlands near the Arabian Sea. But now, China and the Dadivan culture, 5800 to 5400 BC. One Neolithic culture emerged in China on a mountain slope south of the Qingshui River in Qinan County, Gansu province. 
after 20 years of excavation, study and collation, archaeologists made a number of breakthroughs at the type site of Dadivan that gave its name to the culture. Breaking six Chinese archaeological records, these finds were of great significance in understanding the progression of the Chinese Neolithic in the Yellow River Valley. Archaeologists have found 240 houses, 98 cooking stoves, 325 pits or cellars, 71 mausoleums, 35 kilns and 12 irrigation canals and ditches that contained 4,147 pieces of pottery, 1,931 stone artifacts, 2,218 bone horn teeth or muscle artifacts and 17,000 animal skeletons. Very precise figures there. Like in northern Mesopotamia, the Dadivan culture practiced dry farming. Carbonized ancient millet specimens known as ji were found in the earliest layers that was contemporary with those found in Greece. This pushes back the original date of dry farming in China by 1000 years. But it proved that the earliest crops were made of the ji variety of millet rather than the later su type that became prevalent from 5000 BC onwards. More than 200 colorful pottery artifacts that included a three-foot earthenware bowl was unearthed in the earliest layer. Thought to be the earliest found in China, these 8000 year old purple red pots dated the skills of Chinese pottery makers 1000 years earlier than previously thought. If you remember back two episodes previously, we mentioned the earliest Chinese characters known as the Jiahu symbols that were dated to 6600 BC. Controversy surrounded these symbols as some researchers suggested that they were a forerunner to the Chinese characters and language used by the Shang dynasty in 1200 BC. Well, another candidate has come forward 10 different types of color symbols found at Dadivan that predated those found on pottery at Banpu in Changxi province by a thousand years. It is believed, like those found at Jiahu, that it may be one of the origins of Chinese script and characters. During the fourth phase of investigation, the foundation of a large building measuring 290 square meters or 420 square meters if you include the outer courtyard was found. Known as F901, it was described by Chinese archaeologists as a communal meeting hall. It was built on an elevated rammed earth foundation that was then layered with burnt clay. It is believed to be the earliest example of a palace-style construction. Inside was the earliest usage of a concrete floor in China. Measuring 130 square meters in area, it was constructed from congealed stone and sand, similar to concrete, actually, that we use today. In fact, this predates concrete used by the Romans by several thousands of years. One floor in room 4 F411 contained a 1.2 meter long and 1.1 meter wide black painted drawing that has completely rewritten China's art history by 2000 years. Despite all these finds that have been recovered so far, 
archaeologists have only discovered somewhere between 1 and 2% of the total area of the Divan. Who knows what else can be found at this site? History books may have been uh, may have to be rewritten again. Lang Shud of Gansu Culture Relics Research Institute stated, quote, We are now only just scratching the surface of this place. End quote. In the past, various different cultures had their own flood myth. Take, for example, the book of Genesis with Noah's Ark in the Old Testament, or the Epic of Gilgamesh from Sumerian folklore. You might dismiss these as fables and myths, but there is an element of truth to these stories. We are going to look at two major floods that occurred during the late 7th millennium BC or in the early 6th millennium BC. One of these definitely happened, but the other is a subject of controversy. Let us have a look at the first one, the one that definitely happened. And that is the Stor Egga slide in 6100 BC. From the end of the Younger Dryas in 9500 BC, Britain had remained attached to continental Europe during the Mesolithic period. This had allowed Mesolithic hunter-gatherers to cross over dry land to Britain to reach a forested peninsula that contained red deer and wild boar. For the next 3,000 years, sea levels had started to rise due to the melting of the ice caps and glaciers, with the result that the connection between Britain and Europe became more marshy and prone to flooding. Ireland had already severed its links with Britain in approximately 8,000 BC, but for a long time there was a land bridge between Ireland and Britain as well. In 6,100 BC, it was like any other day for the Mesolithic hunter-gatherers, particularly those that congregated on the eastern shoreline to either fish or collect seashells. Hundreds of miles away off the northwest coast of Norway, an underwater shelf 200 miles long, containing thousands of cubic miles of rock, collapsed and fell deeper into the North Sea. This was known as the Stor Egga, which means the Great Edge in Norwegian. What was left behind was a huge void that had to be filled by something. That something was an incalculable amount of seawater that emerged to spread in every direction towards Norway, and unfortunately for the Mesolithic people on the East Coast, towards Britain. First thing people noticed was that the tide suddenly receded by a huge distance. What was going on? Seagulls would have flapped about in alarm, so they knew what was happening out to sea. Some of the more eagle-eyed people on higher ground would have noticed a speck in the distance and then bolted for the hills. A wind blew from offshore, a noise started to reverberate like an express train, and without warning... A 30-foot-high wave would have been bearing down on those poor people near the shoreline. Any chance of escape would have been nil. The force of the wave would have been such that anybody in its path would have been obliterated instantly. How we know this tsunami happened was due to a study carried out by Professor David Smith 
of the University of Oxford at Montrose Basin, Angus, Eastern Scotland. What he found was a layer of sand that should not have been there. Such a volume and height of sand could lead to only one explanation, a tsunami. The damage it would have done would have been absolutely shocking. The tsunami itself got as far as the cars of Stirling, an area of tabletop flatland situated to the west of Stirling in the central part of Scotland. There was no doubt about it. This was the worst natural disaster ever to hit Britain, and nothing like this has happened since. Once the wave finally receded, what was left of the land bridge known as Dogger Land was no more. It disappeared under the waves to become the remaining part of the southern North Sea. Britain was, from this point, an island, and any link to continental Europe was severed until the building of the Channel Tunnel. And then we have the Black Sea Deluge. If you're looking at the story of Noah's Ark, the Black Sea Deluge hypothesis is possibly the closest for you. In 1997, William Ryan and Walter Pittman published evidence that a massive flooding of the Black Sea occurred in 5600 BC. Previously, glacial meltwater turned both the Black and the Caspian Sea into huge freshwater lakes that drained into the Aegean Sea. As the glaciers continued to retreat, various rivers changed course to empty into the North Sea, with the result that the levels of the Black Sea started to recede and evaporate. Elsewhere, global sea levels were rising, so it was only a matter of time until the Mediterranean burst its banks over a rocky sill at the Bosphorus. According to this theory, 155,000 square kilometers of land was flooded, leading to significant expansion of the Black Sea to the north and to the west. This is 200 times the amount of water over Niagara Falls would have poured through the Bosporus each day for approximately 300 days. There are four points to back up this theory by Ryan and Pittman. Point number one, global sea levels had risen by 120 meters since the last ice age. Point two, the Black Sea had been closed off and reconnected numerous times over the last 500,000 years. Point three, various methods have been used to study the recent evolution of the Black Sea. And point four, an event was supposed to have occurred during the last 10,000 to 12,000 years with water levels rising rapidly enough to cause notable events. Of course, this theory has been subject of much criticism. Opponents point out that the water has been flowing out of the Black Sea as late as 15,000 years ago. The level of the Black Sea must have been higher than global sea levels and these had already risen since the last ice age. A solid obstruction of the Bosporus must have occurred and would have had to have a significant height on the south side whilst water levels at the north side would be dropping. Lowlands around the Black Sea would already have been flooded. A large part of the geological community also rejects the idea of a catastrophic flood. A sustained long-term pressure from the GNC would have to be significant to bulldoze its ways through the isthmus. Alternatively, enough of a difference in water level would have to occur between the Aegean and the Black Sea. A study carried out in 2012 confirmed that there was zero evidence of a catastrophic flooding in the region. So there you have it, two different flood scenarios, one that definitely happened and another that is very 
controversial. But for now, we will leave it at this point as we approach 5500 BC. Thanks for listening. And next time we'll be talking about various Chinese Neolithic cultures. The Vinca culture that takes over from the Starchevo in the Balkans. And a culture in southern Mesopotamia that starts to have an influence on the existing Halal and Asuna cultures. I want to give a big thanks to Shane Sowersby for these prehistoric scripts. Thank you very much, Shane. And thank you for listening to the Fano History Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.